0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Harbir Singh, co-director of Mac Institute and a professor of management. Just a reminder: We are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. The Mac Institute focuses on innovation of all forms. It's more than technological innovation; it involves business education, uh, new business models, uh, ways in which industries get transformed. We also, for instance, the transformation of telecom into wireless and also smartphones and entertainment. we also look at innovation at the firm level, firms like Netflix that managed to switch to video streaming, whereas Blackbuster that did, blockbuster that did not. And we also look at individual entrepreneurs. If you have any questions or comments during today's show, give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1 1844 Wharton. That's 18449427866. We have a great show today. We have two women who have a lot of experience building their own companies as well as guiding other companies. In the second half of the show, I'll be joined by Cecilia Gates, the founder and creative director of Gates Creative, a boutique marketing and advertising agency that works with fashion and beauty-related industries. But now I'm thrilled to welcome Mary Abaje, founder of Career Stone Group and author of Managing Up, How to Move Up, Win at Work, and Succeed with Any Type of Boss. Mary, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: So you've done this really fascinating piece of work on managing up. And what I really like about this book is it speaks to people kind of in the middle level in the organization and really working with bosses and working with different types of bosses, different types of cultures. And so how would you sort of – what what's a brief summary of the – maybe two main insights in managing up that that we can start off with?
0: Well, that's a great question. So managing up, first of all, let me tell you what it's not. A lot of people think managing up is about sucking up or about being a sycophant or brown-nosing, and that's not what it is at all. Mm-hmm. Managing up is really about applying adaptive skills so that you can build a great, robust relationship with the boss that you actually have, not the boss that you wish you had. So it's mm-hmm. really about understanding how your boss operates, how the organization operates, the culture that uh, you are working in and finding out ways that you can be successful in that organization with that boss to get a good win for you, for your boss, and for your organization. Because we don't always get to choose the type of people that lead us or manage us. So it's really, at the end of the day, it's about learning how to be a follower.
1: Very interesting. And so when you think about being a follower, uh, maybe we can think about leaders who have managed to transform their organizations. Yeah. And, you know, uh, of course, you're talking about managing within an organization. Uh, but what can we sort of think about in terms of innovative organizations, how you can, uh, in an innovative organization, employees innovate, and they find ways for their bosses to appreciate or even enhance or or amplify the innovation they have. So uh, people I thought about who are really remarkable public figures, Uh, One is Elon Musk, uh, you know, the founder of Tesla, but also SpaceX, kind of the electric car. Um, You know, you have uh, Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook. Uh, So in these kinds of organizations, how do people function?
0: Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think you have to really understand what's important to those kinds of leaders, like Elon Musk, I think what's important to him, I don't know him personally, but what I think is important to him is innovation and moving forward and taking risks and taking chances Mm -hmm. and being out there and really be thinking. And I think if you have a boss like that, then you have got to find a way to adapt to that sort of thinking. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go all the whole hog over you know, into right field. You want to be a little bit of a counterbalance, but you have to be ready to be innovative yourself. You have to align your work styles and your priorities to your bosses. So I think innovative leaders really do well when they have people that are willing to go along the ride with them.
1: So how do I uh, sort of enhance or collaborate with an with with someone like you know, Musk, who maybe and I'm just you know we we know something about him, but just to use one example, somebody who's quite impatient with the status quo, for example, yeah. right? Somebody who does not believe something that something's infeasible is an answer. He would still like to try to see how to make it feasible. How do you work with a boss like that?
0: Well, you have to try to adapt to a boss like that. So someone who doesn't want, who doesn't think things are who thinks everything is possible, you have to be willing to put in the effort to find those possible things. You have to constantly be questioning your mental models, right? Your ladder of inference, what you think is can happen and what you can't happen. You need to have a great big network of innovators yourself mm-hmm. and you need to collaborate and always be thinking if we can't make that happen, like if we can't go to Mars, maybe we can go to the moon or something. Like always trying to uh, find a way to get closer and closer to that goal. What you can't be is an Eeyore, right? You can't be wah, 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 that can't happen. You've got mm-hmm. to find the way to think outside the box the way your leader does. It's going to take yes. a lot of work. Like I would imagine working for Elon Musk, you're probably working all the time.
1: Well, I think that's that's part of the issue. And I think when you look at today's work environment, what we see is, you know, a lot of companies are focusing a lot on uh, measurement and metrics. You know, they are looking at, and I'm talking now about larger corporations. They have to meet with Wall Street's uh, forecasts. Um, and how does one function? They're a very different environment now from the uh, innovation environment. How do you then actually create an innovative environment in a situation where there are lots of tight metrics?
0: Yeah. I think with that you have to make sure, and this you have to make sure that the metrics are the right metrics, right? If you have too many type metrics that are not important metrics, then I honestly don't know how you create innovation in organizations like that. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at the culture model, that sounds like a very you know hierarchical culture when there's too much, or a market culture, there's too many metrics, mm-hmm. and you've got to be able to free that up a little bit. I believe for innovation to happen, if people are only doing what's mm-hmm. measured it doesn't leave space for you to do other things. So if you're working in an organization like that, I think you have to almost operate on a double track. You have to make sure that your day job, right, your 90% of your time is delivering those metrics, and then you're going to have to carve out time to find the innovative ways around things. And mm-hmm. when you want to bring an innovative idea to, into an organization or a leader who is metric-focused, you have to make sure that you have thinking about the metrics to that innovation, if that makes sense. Like, here mm-hmm. are the metrics to this, or here's how I know this is going to work.
1: Mm -hmm. So so that's very interesting. What you're saying is create uh, sort of space for yourself uh, beyond the metrics, right? And maybe it involves adding hours. Maybe it involves projects that are not necessarily on the radar screen, but you're doing it because you believe it's important, right? That's right. So tell me more about um, how one sort of navigates a situation which, you know, uh, is very efficiency oriented. And it's a little bit more. I really like this. The idea. So part of what you're saying is, I have to negotiate in some way, right? So tell me more about that.
0: Yeah. So let's say that. Um, let's say that you're my boss, okay? Mm-hmm. And let's say you are very you're very detail oriented. You're very metric oriented. You're very process oriented, and you like things laid down. You like a lot of details, and you want to process. And let's say I don't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then. If I'm working for you and I like my job and I like the company, I kind of have to make a choice, right? I have to either decide I'm going to give you what you need Mm because you are the boss or I'm going to sit there and complain and let my career go nowhere. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose to meet you where you are. I'm going to choose to create the metrics or the details that are going to make you happy so that you can trust me so that I can also start to color outside the box a little bit, right? Outside the lines. Mm -hmm. But I can't do that if you don't have confidence that I'm at least meeting the metrics that are most important to you.
1: So part of what you're saying is it's very important to build credibility as an individual. And when you build credibility as an individual, you have more of an opportunity to create some space for yourself. But, That's exactly right. But if you're you kind of rebe- rebelling against it or if you feel that this is inconsistent with who you are, then it's actually less effective.
0: That's exactly right. So let's take a very common boss that people get all upset about, which is the micromanager. Mm -hmm. Uh, In all the workshops we do, it's the number one boss that people can't stand, the micromanager. Um, And and I find that interesting because what happens with the micromanager is, you know, if you follow the neuroscience, all human beings have this need for autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. And when our need for autonomy butts up against our manager's need for control and inclusion, we label Mm -hmm. that micromanaging. So when you have a micromanager boss, which is no fun, I get it, we can either complain about it and get all bitter or we can decide to actually give that boss what they want Mm -hmm. all that boss wants is information inclusion and a little bit of control so uh, i'll i'd have this uh, young woman in one of my workshops that she had a micromanager so she decided that she was going to give her micromanager uh daily emails twice a day Mm -hmm. complete updates of all her projects and the status of them and it took her a lot of extra time but you know what after three months of doing that Mm -hmm. She had complete autonomy, and she started to dwindle down how much she was given there. But once that manager trusted that Mm -hmm. that person was doing things the way that that manager wanted them, she then gave her a ton of autonomy. And that's all it takes. It takes extra effort, but that's what you have to figure out. You have to be pragmatic about your approach.
1: So part of what you're saying is that uh, often people – think about it just in terms of personality, you know, that I have this micromanager, I'm just not somebody who works well with micromanagers. And that actually is, uh, is not effective. You're saying that everybody, anybody who understands how to navigate can actually be successful. This, uh, yes, this exactly.
0: Way. Because let's look at the let's look at the reality. Uh, most organizations today still promote people into management and leadership based on tactical skills, mm-hmm. not on being a good manager, having relational aptitude, or managerial aptitude. In fact, Harvard Business Re- uh, Review just did another report saying that not only is this alive and well in America, it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. So in your career, that means your odds of having a boss that isn't perfect. Are pretty high. A boss that really doesn't understand how to lead people is going to be pretty high. So then you have a choice in your career: either you can learn to adapt to them and learn how to manage them and manage that situation, or you're going to find yourself quitting a lot of jobs because you're not going to have what we call
1: the unicorn boss. Hmm. And and so let's talk a little bit about peer relationships. So this yeah. right now you're talking about one-on-one. Uh, as we think about peers, how do we how do we sort of? Uh, build um, a pathway for us to collectively innovate.
0: Yeah. And so part of innovation, if you're talking, if innovation comes from collaboration, and oftentimes it does, right? Uh, and we know that innovation is often driven by diversity, by bringing different points of view to the table, different perspectives, different experiences, then your ability to work with different kinds of people becomes very important in the workplace for innovation. Mm -hmm. And it is the same sort of adaptive mentality that you'll have with your boss, that you'll have with your peers. It could be something as simple as introverts learning to work well with extroverts. It could be something like any kind of personality type, like the big thinkers with the detailed thinkers, the fast-paced and patient people with the more moderate pace. The more that you can learn to adapt to, – first of all, to adapt and appreciate other styles, whether they're your peers, whether they're your bosses, or whether they're the people who are reporting to you, is an amazing skill. Mm-hmm. Leaders in the 21st century must be adaptable not only to the people but to the circumstances.
1: So uh, you're talking about diversity in a very interesting way. You're talking about it in terms of different styles of decision-making or different mm-hmm. uh, attitudes, or different approaches. Can you tell us more about the different let, – let's start with the leaders. In your book, you talk about many different types of leaders. What are the most common that you find that people have? You already mentioned the micromanager. Um, but also, what are the more unusual ones that might actually be very interesting to us?
0: Um well, I find them all interesting. I think some of the ones, you know, you have on the, the other side of the of the micromanager, you have what we call the macromanager, uh, which is the ghost boss, you know, the absentee mm-hmm. boss, the boss that just throws you work and then leaves. And I would think that would be a great boss because I am one of those bosses. But that could be troublesome, too, for people because that kind of boss actually trusts you to get stuff done but isn't there to hold your hand. And a lot of people actually want a little bit more guidance. So that's a very interesting kind of boss of how to manage that boss. You're gonna really have to be proactive about getting their attention, right? You're gonna always be the one that leads the connection. You're gonna lead the check-ins. And when you get that boss's attention, you need to use that time very wisely. Mm-hmm. Um, another boss that we talk about is the impulsive boss, right? The boss that is always on to the next shiny new object. Mm-hmm. And this boss can be very, very exciting but also troublesome if you're the kind of person that wants to do the same thing each and every day. So understanding where you are, where your boss is, and where you're aligned is great, where you're different could be troublesome.
1: And so when you talk about diversity, again, diversity of the team, um, one is, of course, team selection. Again, you may have less control over that, although certainly in many organizations, everybody participates in searching for people. So one of the pieces of advice would be to, to... think about team composition. Can you say more about that?
0: Yeah, and I would say when you think about team composition, you know, we all know through unconscious bias, what we do a lot is just pick people just like us. Mm -hmm. You know, people who think like us, have the same background, the same perspectives. But if you really want to drive innovation, and you really want uh, to think about things differently, you should actively look for people who think differently than you. People who have a different sort of perspective at work. You should all have the same priorities around what you want to accomplish, Mm -hmm. but you should really look for people who bring a different background, a different maybe method of getting from point A to point B? Because all too often, if you keep hiring the same people, I don't think that really gets to be innovation. I think then you find yourself in Plato's cave, right? You're telling mm-hmm. each other the, in the same echo chamber, the same thing.
1: Right. So part of it is um, it's, it's personal development. You, know, yeah. you, you look for diversity. And when you look for diversity, you have to deal with uh, how you yourself may be uncomfortable with certain styles. But Overall, that's good for the team. That's good for the team. And, and the
0: minute you feel yourself uncomfortable with a different style, that's where you start to learn, mm-hmm. right? And when and that's what keeps that growth mindset and not that fixed mindset. If you just keep hiring the same sort of people, then you're not actually developing yourself because you know how to work with one kind of person. That's it. Mm-hmm. And that's not good for your career as a leader. That's not good for innovation as an organization. And it's not good for actually being a great problem-solving team.
1: Wonderful. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh, and I'm speaking with Mary Abajay, author of a new book, Managing Up. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1844 wharton That's one 942 7866 So Mary, I've, we've talked about many different things that we can do to adapt to our leaders. Uh, we've talked a little bit about peer relationships. And, and in, in that, you mentioned the team. Uh, what about us as leaders? Yeah.
0: So leadership, as we all know, I'm sure you talk about all the time, is really about self-development, right? And self-development begins with self-awareness. So if you are a leader or a manager and people are reporting to you, there are so many things I would want to tell you. First of all, it is about the people not the Mm -hmm. process, it's about the people. And the more that you can adapt to each and every person that works for you, the more you can develop them. Mm -hmm. And being able to see, to look at each person and say, here's their unique strengths, here's what I value about them, and here's how they are valuable is really how you get the best out of people. And these sort of skills don't come naturally to people. And so when you can think about, so if you are the kind of person where you are learning to manage up and then you're learning to manage across, by the time you become a leader... Then you should have had those adaptive skills to be able to really look at people individually and manage them. The second thing I want to say is make it easy for people to manage up to you. So when I wrote this book, uh, I talk with thousands of leaders every year and I'll meet two kinds of leaders. Leader type one says, oh my God, I'm buying 100 copies of that book. I'm going to underline it all and I'm going to give it to my team so they know it's important to me. Mm -hmm. Leader type number two says, I don't want my staff reading that book. I don't want them managing, quote unquote, managing up to me. Mm -hmm. And I look at that second type, I'm like, what are you, crazy? Like, why wouldn't you want to be transparent? Why wouldn't you want to let your people know how you operate, what your preferences are, what your priorities are, what your pet peeves are? So I think my big thing to leaders right now is Be transparent about what you want and what you need. Make it easy for your team to manage up to you. Mm
1: -hmm. So when you think about um, how human resource management has evolved over the years, um, you know, a few years ago, companies used to have career ladders. They used to have training programs. They used to have, you know, uh, pathways for people. Uh, One of my colleagues, Peter Capelli, who's an expert in this area, points out that uh, companies have now, um done much less of that and now what they essentially do is d- depend on the labor market you know you source leaders and source employees at multiple levels and very often that is done through outsourcing uh, means and so as a result uh, the hiring manager gets involved much later so how do we think about getting leaders into the system in a situation where we are relying so much on the labor market and not so much on internal development. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah,
0: no, I think that you have raised something really important, and I think that is one of the challenges that we hear about in our clients with the millennial generation, right? Mm -hmm. They have gone – they have gone through their entire life with the rubric for success, right? You know, here's the plan, here's what you do. And then they get into these companies and they're expecting someone to help them with career development and it's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's really on your own. And that's neither good or bad, it's just what it is. And so I think now leaders, I think that there's a real inconsistency across American organizations around what is leadership's responsibility for career development for their people, for, for, for career pathing. I can tell you that the large... Um, Ah, uh, professional services firms like the Accentures that PWCs, mm-hmm. those people, they have to hire a lot of young people every year. And so they're actually being very thoughtful, or more so than, say, large, or other large organizations, about what kind of career pathing they can do. And they're also starting to think about what, how can we make sure that we are uh, also devising a diverse pipeline for leadership up through the organization. So mm-hmm. I think it's a challenge for many organizations that, how to bring that kind of career pathing in. And, of course, what is the responsibility of leadership?
1: and i think that uh, so in fact along those lines um very often they also use when they use outsourcing agencies um which which i think is very common these days um the tests tend to be more uh generic they are not specific to the job or to exactly. the, or the company and and so many um many uh, new graduates and let's speak let's talk more about millennials actually through this as well uh many many recent graduates um end up thinking about working in smaller companies because I feel like now I have growth opportunity and all of that. I'm not in. I'm not a faceless resume that is being sorted through an algorithm, you know. So any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of trying to get experience in both. And I know that if you go to a small company, millennials, if you're out there, go to a small business, uh, you're going to learn so much more, so much faster because you're going to have to do a lot of things like you're going to have to do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that, do a little bit of this. And I think smaller businesses give you more responsibility sooner because they have less people. They have less pipeline. I think you get noticed more. Mm-hmm. And I also know that you go to one, a, you know, a blue chip firm and that's on your resume. But I would say for the millennials that really want to get their hands dirty, really want to learn a lot go to a, go into a smaller business. You will learn so much more and you can become um, seen and I think you can develop deeper relationships with people higher up in the organization.
1: And that's, that's a fascinating point and I think that uh, that's actually what many of them are choosing, which is interesting, or consulting. So you've kind of picked the two areas where there seems to be sort of some consistency or some some public knowledge as to what the opportunities yeah, are. Yeah, you
0: know, the big consulting firms, I mean, uh they're going to they're going to chew you up and spit you out. Like you are never going to work so hard in your life, mm-hmm. but you are going to get so much out of it, you know. So if if that's a good lifestyle for you for for however many years you want to do it, it will be experience that will be well worth it and you're going to work 70 80 hours a week when you do that.
1: Right. Then nobody I mean that's in my view, a wonderful thing to do, but I completely understand. Yeah, Uh, but I mean, if you're going
0: to work that hard, do it while you're young.
1: Do it while you're you're young. Do it while you're young, and you'll you'll, uh, never regret it. Uh, So I noticed you had a chapter on quitting. Yes. Tell me more about that.
0: So I think people have a hard time quitting and I think they have a hard – I think people have an easy time quitting when a better opportunity comes along, right? Mm-hmm. Or when they know that their skills aren't, aren't really you know, being developed. But I think when people have a difficult boss, mm-hmm. I think that they don't like to quit. And there was right. a recent survey done by a company organization called Life Meets Work where they actually discovered that people who work for toxic bosses stay two years longer. On mm-hmm. average in a job. And so I was really thinking about this and researching it and I think I think for one, I think in America, quitting is shameful, mm-hmm. right? We don't quit. Quitters yes. never win. Yes. And I know, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, Angela Duck's work on, you know, mm-hmm. grit, and the power of grit and resiliency. Yes. So I think we get all these messages and then we don't quit. And mm-hmm. I wanna say to people, if you're in a toxic work situation, you really have to quit. Yes, you really do, because it is study after study shows that it damages your physical health. It damages your mental health. A study in Sweden showed that it takes 22 months to recover from a toxic boss, a toxic work atmosphere. So I think people stay because they're afraid to quit. I think we fear the unknown. And I think some of us just stay hopeful that something's going to change. Oh, HR is going to do something about that boss. Someone's going to like turn her in. And it just isn't going to happen.
1: Very interesting. In fact, I on um, I, I, in, in page 186 of your book which you know I think there's some very interesting points it's about quitting and you talk about many signs which I thought are really interesting and you just spoke about them you feel miserable every day uh, physical em- and emotional well-being is being challenged you feel unsafe uh, you find yourself hiding at work from your boss fascinating so what you're, what you're really uncovering which I think is really nice is you know it's not always just all positive yeah right there are times when people feel trapped yeah and you're saying you know uh, don't sort of feel that you're throwing you don't throw good effort after bad right, right. it's
0: it's 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 you know it's you have to look at it from behavioral economics right, right. you it, you you can't your opportunity cost and your sunk costs like you've already put that time in you're not getting it back right? right um and then you have to so you've already lost that and then you have to think about what you're losing by not putting yourself to your next best use So you are doubling down your sunk costs with opportunity costs. And Mm -hmm. I don't think people think economically like that. I was uh, doing a, this talked about 500 lawyers, um, like two months ago, and we were talking about it's okay to quit. And lawyers, you know, they join these law firms, right? And these were people right below partner level. And, uh, after the talk, this young woman came up to me and she said, I've been at this firm for eight years. I am miserable. My boss is toxic Mm -hmm. and you have now given me the power to quit. And I heard from her like two months later after that. Um, and she said, I've quit. I've got a new job. I don't know what was wrong with me. I must've had like Stockholm syndrome, Mm -hmm. but I was trapped. It wasn't until someone said to me, it's okay to quit that I realized that it was okay to quit.
1: Fascinating. That's, that's a great example. Actually you mentioned behavioral economics so there is actually research also on venture capitalists and what it, who are of course renowned for exiting early enough if something's not working but even venture capitalists tend to overstay by one or two rounds of investment in multiple round situations because uh, so so there is this bias that even people who are very good at it uh, cannot fully overcome and, and I think what you're talking about here is in the work situation, again, a bias where people feel that you know I really should wait either wait for this to turn around or put in more work to make it happen.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. And sometimes they people just don't want <clears throat> people just don't want to give up what they've earned. Like, oh my God, I worked hard to get this corner office. Yes. Or oh my goodness, you know this pays too good. Or and there are really real economic things like uh, you know there aren't any jobs like this in my area. Or you know right. I need this job, and I totally get that. And you have to weigh that with your own physical and emotional health.
1: And let's now, in fact, connect this to innovation in a in in a particular way. And that is that um, the parallel in innovation is uh, to actually exit a project that is unlikely to work. Right. Mm. So you have to explore enough that you will fail. If you're not failing, you're not exploring enough. So there's there's some oh, like very that. interesting parallels and And what happens again is startups tend to fail more frequently than larger corporations, but because they have scarce resources, they can exit quickly. So do you have any comments on that at the individual level the 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 budding leader? Uh, one thing I can think about is you know um project selection. you know you you'll have another innings. There's no such thing as a last inning.
0: No, I love that, and I think if people actually—if people actually thought of their careers like their own businesses, and if they thought about like if I want to be innovative in my career, I think it would be easier to quit. It would be easier to take those risks. It would be easier to fail because you only learn when you fail. I love that. I'm gonna—I'm gonna use that for the next book.
1: Well, and and actually, <laughs> wonderful. And and I think you have that in here in terms of that's what I really like the chapter about about quitting. And but I think what you're also saying is. That um, always look for personal growth. And if you're not growing, then you need to make a change.
0: That you need to make a change, right? So, you know, Eckhart Tolle tells us that when we're faced with any difficult situation, we have three choices, right? Choice one is to uh, accept it, right? This is going on. I'm going to accept it. And that means really accepting it, Uh, not complaining about it, not letting it like ruin your life. Choice number two is to change it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can't change other people, but you can change how you react to it. Right. So if you have a boss who is, you know, a narcissist or if you have a boss who is uh, just completely opposite you, you can change how you interact with that person. You can't change that person. And then the third option is to leave the situation. And right. those are the only three options. And I'm just always so amazed at how many people choose none of those and instead just stay resistant and bitter and angry. And I look at them and I'm just like, it's your career.
1: Your right, career right, matters. Right, you right. have to take
0: control of your yeah. career so, so and I your workplace experience. Yes.
1: And that's a fascinating point that that only the individual can decide what to do about it. So they, to, of course, people feel trapped at times. You know, the situation's out of control. Uh, less sense of you know ability to move the needle themselves, but they do you do have choices in terms of uh, of possible new roles, yep. and I think that 's where we can we can think about it so uh, you know of course, we deal with a lot of young people mid may we had our graduation um, you know thousands of uh, very optimistic young people coming out with a degree from here. What advice would you give them
0: oh, I love this part all right, so a couple of things one. Your career is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh-huh. So use your first couple of years, if you don't know exactly what you want to do, to just get as much experience as you as you possibly can. Uh, don't worry about your money. Don't be checking your Facebook page every five minutes to see what your friends are making. Really go for experience, above yeah. all. It is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, the second thing I would say to the young people is, and I hate, I hate people say this, but Follow things that find interesting to you, right? Yes. Don't, like, find good skills and good, don't worry so much about your title yet. And then the last thing I would say is nothing nothing can short-circuit hard work. If you want to be more successful than the person sitting next to you, you're going to have to work a little you bit harder. harder. And yes. so often we see people want things really fast, but nothing is going to help you succeed more than working harder than the person next to you.
1: Well, what a wonderful line uh, to To end on, Uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining the show today. And it was wonderful to hear from you. And uh, how can listeners keep up with you, more importantly? Oh,
0: well, you can follow me on Twitter, at Mary Abajay, or you can visit my website, careerstonegroup.com, and you can buy the book Managing Up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place that sells books.
1: Wonderful. And that's a very catchy title. I'm sure people can find it. Uh, We need to take a short break. When we come back, I'll be joined by Cecilia Gates, founder and creative director of Gates Creative, to talk about innovation in fashion and in advertising. I'm your host, Harbir Singh. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.